I think uh, for those of us who've been around a while, Daniel's channeling his inner Keith Green there, if you picked up on that. Um, just got back from our annual elder retreat, and uh, we so appreciate your prayers. Trying to figure out how to pilot this ship in a pandemic requires all the more wisdom for us. So we're so grateful for those of you who prayed for us while we were away. And uh, also, I just want you to know that these men deeply love you. God has given them a really genuine love and care for you. And they are working really, really hard um, to, try to, to try to shepherd you well through the church and through this season. And you'll be hearing more about that in the, in the weeks to come, I'm sure. Let me encourage you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. That's where we are in our study of the Gospel of Mark. And Jesus is continuing his journey towards Jerusalem and the cross, um, which at this point in the Gospel of Mark could just be months away. We're about to see uh, opposition is increasing for Jesus at this point in his time. Look at verse one with me. Uh, Jesus left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan and crowds gathered to him again and again as was his custom. He taught them. Um, You know, Jesus, as we saw last week, is trying to be covert these days. He's trying to escape the crowds, focus on the training of the 12 disciples, not the crowds. But the crowds find him out and, and Jesus has time for them. It's interesting what Mark brings out here. Jesus' response to the crowds, the way his compassion and care for the crowds is manifest, is is teaching. Matthew points out that it was Jesus healing. But Mark wants us to be mindful that it's Jesus' teaching that's an expression of his care for the crowds who follow him. And so this morning, the teaching that we're about to receive Honestly, it's, it's a hard teaching, especially in our day, perhaps. Um, but it is an expression of Jesus' care for us. Let me ask you do, you, do you believe that? And you might be saying, well, wait, I don't even know what the teaching is yet. Um, but does that really even matter? If it comes from Jesus on this focused, willful journey of his to the cross um, where he will put the love of God for the likes of us on display for everyone to see, does it even really matter what his teaching is? Can you receive his teaching as as his care for you, um, sight unseen? Surely the cross opens our hands to Jesus' teaching, even the hardest of ones, as his love for us. And so there are two things you need to cling to this morning um, if this teaching is going to work for you. First is simply this. Know that you are deeply loved by Jesus. And this teaching is an expression of his love for you. And secondly, you have to recognize that this teaching sits amidst Jesus' instruction on discipleship. This is part of what it means to follow Jesus. It's an expression of Jesus' call to discipleship. 
Remember back in chapter 8, just a couple pages earlier, Jesus said, when he called the crowd to him with his disciples, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Discipleship to Jesus is not easy. It will cost you suffering. So as we look at this passage together, would you pray with me? Again, one more time, and let's ask God for faith to trust and receive this as his good care for us, okay? Pray with me just briefly. Lord, we open up our hearts to you and we, we trust you. Where else would we go for instruction for life, even in the hardest of times and the hardest of places? So we trust you. We receive your word as your kindness to us, your care for us. But we need the Spirit to do that, and we ask for his work now in and through us. Lord, help us, we pray. Amen. All right, verse 2. The Pharisees came up, and in order to test Jesus, they asked him this question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And, And the religious leaders, as Mark's been going along, they've been stalking Jesus, right? They pop up here and there and they question him. As it says here, they test him. And this time the test focuses on Jesus teaching on divorce. Their question is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Matthew adds a little detail that's assumed here. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? That that seems to be the sense here. Is it lawful? Is it biblical? For a husband to divorce his wife for any reason. That's the sense of their, their trap. Can you get a divorce for any cause? That should sound familiar. We call it no-fault divorce. Now, I was born in 1958. And you can do the math. I'm 35. Um, the, the year before I was born... Precisely one state had no-fault divorce. One. And now, no-fault divorce in some form exists in all 50. All of them. In the year 2000, at the end of his 40-year political career, Senator Patrick Moynihan said, the biggest change that I've seen is that the family structure has come apart all over the North Atlantic world. The change, he said, has occurred in historical instant. Something that was not imaginable 40 years ago. He said that in 2000. You could imagine what he'd say now, 20 years after that statement. Now, as a case in point, uh, a number of years ago, a a law firm named Fetman, Corey Fetman and Associates, displayed this cutting-edge billboard in Chicago um, that had hot male bodies and uh, female bodies on it and emblazoned was this message, life's short, get a divorce. And due to the positive response to that ad campaign, they began selling merchandise with the same message emblazoned on it. For about 20 bucks, you can get a t-shirt with the same message. And that'd be a really sorry and sorrowful use of 20 bucks. Or consider this Christian counselor's advice. God made marriage for people. He didn't make people for marriage. 
He provided marriage so that people could enjoy each other to the fullest. I say if you have two people that are not thriving healthily in a situation, I say remove the marriage as a Christian counselor. And I'm thinking if that were the case, who would still be married? I mean, who hasn't been in a time in their marriage where they weren't thriving healthily for a season? Make sure you don't miss this. When Jesus cares for your marriage, he is caring for you. And we're about to see that. What Jesus is about to teach us is of the utmost importance for us in our day. But remember, the Pharisees are using this debate to set a trap for Jesus. They are not coming to their rabbi for marriage counseling, right? And Jesus had taught virtually the same teaching in his Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere. So this is not new news to the Pharisee. I think they already know what his answer is. It's part of their trap. It's a multifaceted trap, but one interesting angle that um, scholars are proposing is that they may have been provoking Jesus to take a public stand against divorce that would raise the ire of Herod. You remember John the Baptist confronted Herod about his illegitimate divorce and subsequent remarriage to his brother's wife. And you remember where that got John the Baptist, right? It got his head on a platter. And so they may be, that may be the trap for Jesus. But Jesus does what he loves to do in a debate. He counters their question with the question. Verse three, he says, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. So the Pharisees were the law protectors, right? And so Moses, the law giver, was their hero. And they're experts in the law of Moses. So when Jesus takes them to Moses, they're thinking he's coming onto our turf. At least that's what they think. And Jesus said to them in verse 5, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. So, so Jesus is saying here that what Deuteronomy 24 teaches, which is where this comes from, is not the way God intended it to be from the beginning. It's a permission granted because of the sinful hardness of our hearts. It's a concession. One writer put it this way, according to Jesus, divorce is not God's glad pleasure for, it is God's sad concession to the sinful human condition. So Jesus says to them, the certificate of divorce that Moses allowed is not the way things are supposed to be, it's a concession. It's not according to God's original design, but a concession because of our hard hearts. And Jesus now moves on to teach the way things are supposed to be concerning marriage. Professor James Edwards makes this point really well, I think. He says, you do not learn to fly an airplane by following the instructions for making a crash landing. You will not be successful in war if you train by the rules for beating a retreat. The same, he says, is true of marriage and divorce. The exceptional measures necessary when a marriage fails are of no help in discovering the meaning and intention of marriage. Jesus endeavors to recover God's will for marriage, not to argue about possible exceptions to it. 
And so in verse six, Jesus says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, Jesus says, let not man separate. So Jesus takes them back, not just to Deuteronomy, but all the way back to the beginning, to the creation account, to the book of Genesis, the very opening pages of the Bible. And he does this because they're, they're asking the wrong question. Their question smacked a little too much of, so what will God let us get away with? Instead of what does God desire for his people in this matter? So the question for us is, do I trust Jesus' teaching to be an expression of his care for me? Here, now, even in the hard places of my marriage. Am I willing to walk out his way for his disciples in marriage as an expression of my love for him? So Jesus quotes from Genesis and he establishes a number of foundational principles to guide his disciples in matters of marriage. There's, there's about four or so of them that I'll, that I'll underscore. First one, he says the two become one and a mysterious union takes place. One, one observer wrote it this way, physical union brings metaphysical union and sexual intercourse delivers a spiritual interconnection so deep that it should only be entered where there are strong undergirding foundations of spiritual faith and biblical marriage. So I've been walking this out for over 38 years now. It's kind of tricky if I'm 35, right? Um, and this is, a this is still a mystery to me. I am for her and she is for me. I know her and am known by her. I am near to her and she to me. We share the sign of the covenant exclusively with each other. I'm talking about wedding bands. What did you all think I was talking about, okay? <laughs> and the two become one. A mysterious union takes place a third entity is brought into being and to fracture that union is a great sorrow C.S. Lewis captures the sense of it when he says Christians all regard divorce as something like cutting up a body as a kind of surgical operation some of them think the operation is so violent that it cannot be done at all Others admit it as a desperate remedy in extreme cases. They are all agreed that it is more like having both your legs cut off than it is dissolving a business partnership or even deserting a regiment. And the two become one, Jesus says. The second thing I'll point out to you is that he says this is a union between a man and a woman. This is God's design from the beginning that they should be male and female. Professor Dale Bruner has a beautiful way of saying things and I'll, I'll cite him a couple of times here. He says, if God had supremely intended solitary life, God would have created humans one by one. 
If God had intended polygamous life, God would have created one man and several women. If God had intended homosexual life, God would have made two men or two women. But that God intended monogamous heterosexual life is shown by God's creation of one man and one woman. So homosexual marriage, though increasingly legal in our land, is something other than marriage that the Bible describes. Something other than marriage as God created it and as Jesus taught it. So what does that mean for you or for your friends if they are someone who has a leaning towards a same-sex attraction? Well, you need to know that same-sex marriage is not welcomed here. Okay. But you are. Okay. You are, if this, is, if this is your leaning, you are welcome here. Along with people who are tempted to be polygamous or polyandrous or fornicators or pornographers or whatever are bent, right? We are all repenting sinners, as Martin Luther referred to us. And so you will be welcomed and loved here as we follow Jesus' way together. But if you're dealing honestly with, with Jesus' teaching here, plainly, he understands marriage be, to be between a man and a woman. Right? A third thing that becomes clear is that he believes this is God's work. God is the one who makes the two one. What God has joined together, Jesus says. If you're married, God is the author of it. Again, Professor Brunner says the great God, this august God, is the subject of Jesus' grand command here. Jesus does not say, therefore, what nature has joined together, or even, therefore, what your love has joined together, but therefore what the great God has joined together, indicating Jesus' conviction that the personal God makes marriages. And clearly, Jesus sees marriage as God's work. And so these three teachings lead Jesus to a fourth where he says, we must not separate what God has joined. To do so puts us in opposition to God's own work and design. It is, in a word, sin. But we are very confused about this these days. There was a religion and ethics uh, Newsweekly poll a while back that 71% of Americans agreed that God's plan for marriage is one man, one woman for life. But only 22% thought divorce was sin. Only 34% of evangelical Christians thought divorce was a sin. We are confused. Not because Jesus' teaching is not clear. He says here authoritatively, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. We must not separate, Jesus says. We must do everything in our power to not separate, to not divorce in our marriages. Um, Fox News told a wonderful story uh, a number of years ago about uh, Cindy and Chip Altimos. After 10 years of marriage, they were in the long process of getting a divorce. And uh, five years into a painful separation, Chip was in the hospital with kidney failure. And with his health deteriorating rapidly, his soon-to-be ex-wife came to his aid, in spite of Chip's being in another relationship at the time. He was still my husband, Cindy said. 
there's no way I could walk around with two kidneys, and he had none. So Cindy told the press it was the right thing to do. She agreed to donate a kidney, telling Chip there were no strings attached, no written agreement concerning a better share in divorce court. And the transplant took place back in February of 2007, and a funny thing happened as they both recovered in the hospital. They fell back in love. And Chip thought to himself, why would I want to date someone else when I have a woman who would give part of herself so I can keep living? And he put an end to his other relationship. He asked Cindy to come back home with him. And the two, at the time of writing of this article, had been married 17 years. Um, so how hard should you work to save your marriage? You should give up your kidney, if need be, to save your marriage. That kind of sacrificial love just might save it. If someone wants to know what Jesus thinks about marriage and divorce, this would be a beautiful place to take them to Mark 10, verses 6 through 8. He believes an actual union takes place, that it must be between a man and a woman, that it is the very work of God himself, and that man must not separate what God has joined together. And so at this point, Jesus is done with the Pharisees, and he enters a house, which is kind of his favorite place to take his disciples and begin to disciple them up close and so now Jesus and the disciples kind of have the meeting after the meeting right verse 10 and in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter and he said to them whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her and if she divorces her husband and marries another she commits adultery so Jesus warns his disciples here that there's not just a trap set for Jesus. There's a trap set for them and for us as well, and it will lead us into adultery if we fall into it. Adultery is a terrible word in the scriptures. When God looked for a word to describe the unfaithfulness of his people to him, he turned to this word, adulterous. In, for instance, in James 4. He says, you adulterous people. Did you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God? This is a sin that's to be desperately avoided. And in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Jesus again entangles divorce and remarriage with the sorrowful label of adultery. He says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This should give us pause, right? Whatever Jesus is saying here, it's clear that remarriage is not an automatic right granted to anyone who chooses a divorce. Okay? Jesus says that remarriage is, apart from the grounds of sexual immorality here, he says it's adulterous. And this is the teaching of Jesus. I know it can seem unbearably hard for some of us, yet it is his loving care for us, right? So in Matthew, as we just read, Jesus cites an exception to this, these adulterous charges, right? He says, um, except for or on the ground of sexual immorality. And this this so-called exception clause has been vigorously and exhaustingly debated by scholars. Um, 
Some say this is really no exception at all in marriage, that it applies, for instance, to the betrothal period before marriage. And others would say it does apply to marriage, but only in the case of sustained unrepentant sexual immorality. And if you were to read through Northwake's position statement on marriage, it's on our website, I would encourage you to. Sustained unrepentant sexual immorality is the language that our, our position uses when it talks about this exception. Even those among us who would allow for an exception that would permit divorce and remarriage based on sustained unrepentant adultery, it's, a, it's something that's permitted. It's not something that's required. It's not commanded. Every once in a while I'll talk with someone and they've drawn a line in the sand and they say to their spouse, if you cheat, I'm gone. Or if you cheat, you're gone. And um, I would not counsel that stance. Nor do I think Jesus would. One writer wisely said, we've made adultery grounds for divorce, but in actuality, it's grounds for forgiveness. And this, as I understand the New Testament, is the heart of the teaching of Jesus concerning your marriage. So what should we do with this hard teaching of Jesus? First of all, if you're divorced or remarried, I want you to hear the good counsel from our elders that's in that Northwake marriage statement. It says many people have gone through a divorce before having a relationship with Christ, and others have experienced divorce through no desire or decision of their own. Still others may have divorced because of their own wrongful choices, but have since experienced the repentance and forgiveness offered through our Lord Jesus. We want all of you to know that you are welcome in our church. We want all of you to know you are welcome here. You are so very welcome here, just like the rest of us repenting sinners, right? As Luther called us. And then, and then that same policy addresses those who are remarried. It says you can honor Christ by repenting of any and all past sins related to your previous marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And then by endeavoring wholeheartedly to build your current marriage in such a way that it lasts for a lifetime and pleases God. And we are eager to serve you in that. Okay? What if you are in a hard marriage right now? You may feel like I just closed your escape hatch. But this morning, I want to urge you to trust that Jesus has just closed the door to a snare set for you that could greatly devastate your family and the church and your faith. I want to urge you to trust that God's ways are good and true for you, for you in your marriage now. You are not some aberration in the goodwill of God. Staying in a hard place in your marriage, working with a give you my kidney kind of love is a path of no regret before God. And often, I should add, before your children. And again, this comes from our Northwake statement on marriage. Our elders and pastors at Northwake are committed to shepherding our families through all stages of marriage, the good and the difficult. We are committed to continue studying and bringing the wisdom of the scriptures to you with compassion and honesty in your time of need. Should you find yourself in a difficult place in your marriage or if you're considering divorce or remarriage, our elders urge you to meet with us. Seek our shepherding in this crucial area. We're always available to pray with you and to bring the counsel of the scriptures to you for your good and your Savior's joy and honor. Okay. 
We want to serve you in the hard places. Isolation is one of our adversary's great strategies. Please don't walk through the hard places in your marriage alone. What if the marriage turns, what if your marriage turns abusive? Then know that, that for, at our church, your safety is paramount. We will work hard to find you quickly, safe space. Please don't let this abuse remain a secret any longer. We will do all we can to help you help protect you and shelter you from ongoing abuse. What if you are single or you're in a really good place in your marriage? I would say those of us who are there need to be there for those who struggle when they are tempted to throw in the towel and walk away. The prayers of a single friend can make a huge difference in your married friends. We need to listen well, we need to encourage them to trust Christ, and we need to pray. We need to walk with them through the hard times. We cannot let them walk through the hard times alone. Okay. Alone is such a dangerous place to go through hard times. And so what I'd like to do uh, as a worship team comes is spend just a few moments in prayer together. And I'd like to ask every one of you to pray for one marriage, one marriage. That could be your own marriage, just for its protection, or if it's in a really rough place, for its rescue. Or it could be someone in your family, your children, your parents, a brother or a sister. It could be a good friend for protection in that particular home. Maybe for a marriage that is horribly broken and only God's mercy will be able to rescue it. Pray, pray. And so let's just take a moment before we worship God in song and close our time together. Now let's pray. Would you pray? God's probably already prompted you. You know who to pray for. Feel free to pray with whoever you came with today if you want to pray aloud together there or just to pray silently where you are. And let's pray the mercy of God into the marriages of the people that we love.